This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's a new podcast today, and it's September 11th, which is a day that's obviously important to me and should be important to everybody who's listening to this podcast today. I've spoken about my experiences on 9-11 in another podcast, so I'm not going to go back into that today. But I do want to talk a little bit about how New York City has changed since then. It's been, uh, what, 22 years now, and I suppose what I expected New York City to be today compared to what it is is completely a polar opposite. I'm also going to talk about some other topics that are in the news that are really unavoidable and, and need to be discussed, so I'll get into that. But I also want to talk about my last week or so of work, which I felt had some interesting occurrences, and there are some lessons to be gleaned for young lawyers and, frankly, for not-so-young lawyers. So I want to get into some of that first before I go into some of the topics of the day. Since a week ago last Thursday, so it's about eight days of work from last Thursday to this past Friday, an eight-day period, I've had three federal sentencings in the Eastern District of New York and Brooklyn. Three cases, the total fraud, uh, when you add up the three defendants, was about $11 million or so. Not tremendously big cases for what I'm used to, but big enough, and the clients were all facing significant time in prison. I want to talk about all three of them. To start, uh, the, the, the things I want to impart is that not Every positive result comes at a trial in a case when you're a defense lawyer. You can get positive results regardless of whether or not you have a trial and you get an acquittal. Each client that you're faced with has a different set of problems and really a different set of solutions. It's really like anything else in life, but it's in law. Mainly, the clients, when they come to you, the main thing they want to talk about is avoiding jail. That's the most important thing. What can we do to keep them out of prison? Everything else after that is really gravy. I think when you're first arrested, you're thinking, my God, I don't want to have a felony conviction. Look, when you're facing significant prison time, you'll worry about the felony conviction later. You want to avoid prison, period. So you can also, you know, people think, well, I want to avoid criminal charges at all. They all come into your office thinking about these great things they want to achieve It's very difficult to get a case dismissed. It's happened a few times to me in federal cases over the years, probably hundreds of times in state cases, but federally, and that's what we're talking about. It's very, very difficult. I think I've gotten two or three completely dropped. But as I said, prison is a red line. You can live with anything else, but but prison is just oftentimes uh, too much for most, if not all people. So when someone comes to see you, they're either just been indicted or they've just been arrested. And it's like they're coming to see you with two bullets in their chest. And you have to figure out a way to keep them alive. It's not always a pretty result, but you do whatever it takes to achieve the result of avoiding prison. Because that, again, that's all that matters. They usually have a family. They oftentimes have young kids. And there's also major financial ramifications if they're imprisoned because their lives are so badly disrupted. And I've already spoken about some huge results that I've gotten in the past, trials where clients uh, were facing decades or life in prison and ended with acquittals or hung juries that kept them out of prison, or appeals that I've had or motions for new trials that have vacated decades-long sentences and gotten people out of prison. But the cases I want to speak about today are, are more mundane, They're the ones where the stakes may not seem so high to you and me, the public. They're not in the news, but to these clients, the stakes really couldn't be higher. And sometimes the evidence is so overwhelming that there's no choice but to plead guilty. You know, people come to me and they expect a miracle oftentimes, but sometimes a miracle or at least a great result has to come even after you plead guilty. And then you have to achieve the hard work that follows what to do next to avoid prison. And that's what all three of these cases were really about is how could we avoid prison? And I suppose the long point that I'm trying to make is that a competent lawyer begins thinking about a possible sentence on the very day that they're hired by the client. 
especially in a case where there's no choice and there has to be a guilty plea. You don't want to wait until it's too late to change the facts that are on the ground. You need to prepare early so to give yourself a chance to hit a home run at sentencing. You need to think so far ahead. And I I find it incredible that most lawyers, not even just some, but most lawyers don't think this way. In order to achieve a great result in life and what you're working on, you need to start preparing the battlefield from day one. The earlier, the better. And that's what I did in each of these three cases when they came through the door. All three were fraud cases, as I said. One case was two brothers charged on the same case, and they were to be sentenced separately on the same day this past Friday, hours apart. The other case was the prior Thursday, and it was for a credit card bust-out scheme. And you're thinking, what on earth is a credit card bust-out scheme? Well, that's where a group of individuals managed to fabricate or get their credit scores um, uh, driven higher to enable them to get large credit, either through credit cards or something else. And then they buy a bunch of stuff and they don't pay the bills. It's not a complicated scheme, but in this case, it netted seven figures in losses to the credit card companies. And judges get pissed about this type of thing, not surprisingly, because it's, you know, pretty disgusting behavior. And I suppose criminals think that it's a victimless crime, but it's not. It's not. Now, these were not complicated sentencings at all, but as I said, the stakes were very high. The sentencing from this past Friday, as I said, the two brothers, they presently own and work at two restaurants in Florida. But back then, when the crimes occurred, they were working at a New York bank. The criminal activity, and and follow along with me, started in 2012 and finally ended in 2017. And then the brothers both ended up in Florida. They were both young at the time, in their 20s, when the criminal activity started in 2012, as I said, and they were taken advantage by an older criminal from their neighborhood who had a history of financial crimes. The older brother, and I'm going to refer to him as the older brother, had a, a, a bunch of financial problems and was preyed upon by the older criminal, and that's what I'm going to refer to him as, and he agreed to help the older criminal embezzle money from his bank that he worked in. Nevertheless, the older brother was an adult and he could have said no, but due to his own greed, he got involved in the criminal activity and his you know, financial issues. And they ultimately drained about $7 million from account holders at the bank. After a, a couple of years of this, the older brother decided that he did not want to live this criminal life anymore, and he wanted to move to Florida to start anew. But the older criminal threatened to tell his employer, the bank, what he had done. He also threatened him physically, for real. And this is, there's no question about this. Uh, And these were really no idle threats. The older criminal claimed to have ties to a uh, Muslim terror organization, an overseas Muslim terror organization. And he was very violent as it was. So this wasn't a hard uh, thing to believe. In front of my client, the older brother, the older criminal threw a heavy glass ashtray at his wife's head and attacked his own son with a hammer. In front of my client, I mean, this is like normal behavior for this segment of society. He was a typical crazed, foaming at the mouth, eyes bulging out of his head, tongue hanging uh, out of his mouth, Muslim terrorist or terrorist supporter, for real. So the older brother needed a way out. He had to get out. He couldn't just continue this life of crime forever. And he made a fatal mistake. He asked his younger brother, to take his place in the fraud at the bank. They both were working at the bank. And that placated the older criminal because he could continue to commit the fraud. He didn't care who was involved at the bank as long as he was getting his money. And after another few years, the younger brother had enough of it as well, and he wanted out. And at this point, the older criminal said, fine, that's it. He had stolen enough money. In the end, the total haul was about $7.5 million, and the brothers received only 800000 of the money. So a little more than 10%. And that really exemplified who was in charge in the scheme and was obviously the older criminal. Now, 
back to square one, if we can, the day I met with the clients for the first time. You obviously listen to the facts of the case, but if you're a smart lawyer, you need to listen to the facts of the clients, not just the case. You need to listen to their stories about their lives because you need to find something that you can latch onto for sentencing in case there's a sentencing, if it's needed down the road. There's many different things you can look for in their backgrounds or their present circumstances even, and that can possibly engender some kind of mercy from the judge. And you're not much of a lawyer if you're just talking about the case on that first day uh, because you're missing all these potential opportunities and the ability to start perpetuating them, to start, you know, as I said, preparing the ground. And most lawyers simply don't do it. And I think, why is it that they don't start thinking about sentencing on day one? And the answer is pretty simple. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Most lawyers are idiots. If they're not thinking about robbing you during that first meeting, if they finally got their meat hooks into you and they think they can make some serious dough, they're either thinking about some perfect dishonest post that they'll make on Instagram about their fake successes or on LinkedIn. They'll talk about how proud they are of their colleagues for all the pro bono work they're doing or all the help they're giving to some disadvantaged segment of society, all designed uh, to establish their leftist bona fides because that's what the lawyer profession is. It's filled with liberals. And that's all done just to enable them to make more money from someone who's idiotically impressed by their humble bragging. And, and that's really what this profession is about. It's just a ton of humble bragging by morons. And, and I'd rather, frankly, just say it like it is. And if it offends people, you know, look, I can get away with it without having to market myself in the most pathetic way because I win a lot. I mean, that's why. I'm, I'm, I'm not, there's no other reason. I win a lot. And you may not like me, but you don't have to. I win a lot. So I get hired a lot. Now, when each of these three clients had contact with me for the first time, I made a prediction on how the case would end. Now, I hate doing that because I don't know enough about the case. It's really too early. But the reason I did was mainly because each one of the three clients asked me about 10 times during our first call or, or at our first meeting in person of what the case would end up looking like at the end, at the sentencing. Each case, in my mind, was deader than dead and would require guilty pleas. It was clear from the start. And that's part of the skill set you need to have as a defense lawyer. You need to be able to quickly determine if there's even a chance to fight the case. When figuring this out, you need to obviously take into account the client's willingness to fight. Not everybody has it in them. So you need to analyze the case quickly, you need to analyze your client quickly, and you need to formulate an idea of whether or not the case can be pled out. And it's really too early to make some kind of, you know, perfect decision at that point. But sometimes it's important to act quickly from the beginning, because otherwise you may be missing opportunities. Because in some cases, if it's ultimately going to be a close call as to whether a judge will give a defendant prison time at sentencing, even if the sentencing is years down the road when the sentencing finally occurs in federal court, what may tip the scales in favor of no prison is a very early acceptance of responsibility. It's worked for me in the past where clients who belonged in jail at sentencing end up getting off because I pled them out so early and impressed upon that to the judge of all the resources that were saved by the government. You, you know, you want to do the best thing you can for your client to give him his best chance to avoid prison. So it may be a risk where you have to figure out, well, you know, look, I don't think this case can necessarily be beaten. And I beat some of the most impossible cases, you know, ones where there's 1% chance. But those are cases in which the government tells me from the beginning, you're never getting a plea. You're going to go to trial and you're, we're going to look to get life for a zillion years. Those are the cases oftentimes I try and get uh, fantastic results in uh, because I'm not given the opportunity to plead. In the Gotti case, I was offered 16 years pretrial. We would have taken five, but I was offered 16. It was a ridiculous number. We thought the case was very strong. We thought there was a great likelihood that we'd lose. They offered me 16. Well, guess what? We went to trial and we got a hung jury. And then they were offering five after that first trial. 
this is what it is. Sometimes the best results are because our backs are against the wall and we have no choice. I'll give you another example. Not that long ago, I had a high-profile case with a client, a foreign client, and it was very clear to me from the start that the case was dead. It's a federal case. And then I uh, felt I could get him out of this with uh, possibly no prison time, but he wanted to fight, and that's understandable. It's fine. If you want to fight, I'm the guy uh, you hire because I go to trial a lot and I win a lot. Uh, Many of my best results, as I said, have been in cases in which clients have insisted upon trials against my advice, and I've either won or gotten hung juries, which end up with no jail time ultimately. So that is a win pretty much. Uh, But in this case with the foreign defendant, after reviewing the discovery, he asked that he wanted to fight. Uh, The case was dead to me, and I, I said as much to the client. And I felt we needed to move to the phase of trying to keep him out of prison because that's really what mattered the most. And this was a seven-figure fraud upon some very high-profile government people. So prison was a strong possibility in my mind unless we, you know, pulled a rabbit out of the hat. He ended up firing me, the client, and found a new lawyer from a big firm, a former federal prosecutor. And I told him he was going to get robbed by this big firm and he was going to plead guilty anyway as the former prosecutor, his new lawyer, wasn't exactly known for trying cases. Of course, the client didn't listen. And one year later, after he surely spent six figures in fees at this big law firm, he pled guilty to the very plea I could have gotten for him from early on. He was frustrated when I contacted him after to see how he was doing because he told me he wanted to fight, fight, fight. He ended up paying seven figures for sure and pleading to the same thing uh, that I could have gotten for him. But more importantly is he lost an opportunity to plead early to not uh, require the government to expend the resources, which we could have used as a pretty major factor to keep him out of jail. So not only did he lose the money, but as I said, he lost that factor, the early plea that could have kept him out of prison. I wish them luck. I didn't want him to uh, have to uh, have, have me say to him, I told you so. Nobody likes that. I mean, I like saying it, but not everybody likes to hear it. Now, back to the cases that this podcast segment is about. The credit card bust-out client had called me, this is the day one, had called me from Florida just as he was being arrested and apparently had my number at the ready. He lived in Florida, but the case was in federal court in Brooklyn. He told me enough of the facts on our first call for me to realize that the case was dead. And because the fraud wasn't very big, I felt we had a good chance to keep him out of jail. We just needed a good hook. And I told him that we would meet in New York once he was presented to a Florida judge and released on bail. I knew he was getting bail because the prosecutors up in New York had already agreed upon it. But then the client told me um, that he had a plethora of massive medical issues and was not even allowed to fly in a plane. He needed to drive to New York like 17 hours. The medical issues were so calamitous that I honestly didn't believe that he could be kept alive in prison. That's how bad they were. And the law is clear on this. The judge can give a defendant a lower sentence based on extraordinary medical conditions. And in some cases, if the defendant can't be cared for by the Bureau of Prisons, the judge can just give not just a lower sentence, but a a non-jail, a non-custodial sentence. But you'll find that the Bureau of Prisons tends to fight this sort of thing to the death because they claim that every medical condition they can uh, care for, every condition known to man, even after the inmate dies, well, they can, they can handle that as well. You know, it's just death. It's just a minor flesh wound to the Bureau of Prisons. So my job at, at this point would be to get this case uh, to a posture to make it as easy as possible for the judge to give uh, him a non-custodial sentence. Every criminal defendant has what's called sentencing guidelines. It's a range. It's a a, a legal thing. It's the sentencing guidelines, which advise the judge as to what the case is worth in terms of, of punishment. The judges don't have to follow it, but it's guidance. And the more you steal, the higher the guidelines are. If you use sophisticated means in the fraud, or perhaps you abuse your position of trust in committing the fraud, like you're a lawyer who is entrusted with money in a trust account and you steal it, you get some added points. If you're a leader, you get added points. And they all upwardly adjust the guidelines. The more crimes, the more serious the crimes, the bigger your criminal history, they all raise your advisory guidelines range. But if you make a deal very early, 
Sometimes the prosecutor will let you plead to just one of the charges, or they'll keep out some of the fraud that they're continuing to investigate. And that is all done to induce a plea, but it gets the sentencing guidelines down and gets you closer to zero. It's sort of common sense. The government doesn't want to do any more work than they have to. Uh, They don't want to expend the resources for nothing. So with all of uh, that information in my head during the very first call on the credit card bust-out scheme, I spoke to the new client, and he asked me for my prediction, and I said to him, I don't think you're going to go to jail. I felt as long as he didn't commit any more crimes, his medical condition didn't somehow miraculously improve, that he'd avoid prison. He wasn't the leader of this uh, credit card fraud scheme, and he had a very tough life up to that point. Uh, That was my prediction, no jail. Now, he was sentenced a week ago Thursday, and sure enough, we had the sentencing, and the judge gave him no prison. I expected it, and I didn't really have to do much work for it, frankly, because of the massive medical conditions he had. It was a great result. I got some credit, even if I didn't deserve it, as I said. The client was so kind, and after, he asked me to take a picture with him as we left the courthouse. And frankly, I was really touched and happy for him. He had had a very tough life up to that point. Uh, And then he actually, it ended up matching my prediction of no jail. So I felt that it was a pretty great result. I, I remember feeling after when I took the picture with the client, I felt happy that he had hired me because I had done something positive for him. He was in a mess physically, his condition. And I I don't know, I just, he was a decent guy to me. He was just so appreciative. And when you're a lawyer, you don't always get that. You don't always get appreciation for your work. And it, it, it was a great result. Now, let me get back to the much tougher case, the two brothers and their bank fraud scheme. We have to go back to February of 2020. They flew up from Florida after they were released from prison, and that was our first meeting. And this was right before the pandemic and right before the country was shut down by Trump. We hit it off right away, me and the two brothers. They alerted me to facts of the case and how they felt pressured to stay in the fraud for as long as they did, and that they had made very little money comparatively. They were all positives. They also talked about the fact that they felt physically threatened by the older criminal. But to me, it was a very brazen fraud, a very bad abuse of trust by defendants who worked in a bank, and the judge would be pissed at sentencing. This was many millions of dollars of fraud were taken from innocent account holders as well. The exposure in terms of a prison sentence seemed pretty high for the older brother, but he was in it from the beginning and made a decent amount of money. The younger brother got into it late and was not there for a long period of time in the conspiracy. And any money that he made, he gave it to the older brother to help with the restaurant. So they had really totally different roles. These were going to be two totally different results in my mind. More facts. At the time they came to New York to hire me, they were both working in the single restaurant they had in Florida. It was not a bullshit restaurant. It had about 30 employees or so, and it was made clear to me that one of the brothers, the older brother, ran the whole show. I mean, he was everything. He was the manager, the food preparer. He was the greeter. He dealt with uh, construction. He dealt with the vendors. He made all the recipes up. I mean, it was nuts. He did everything and was really irreplaceable. And there's law in this area. When you're listening to the facts from a client about their backgrounds, it helps if you know the law. There's all these different areas of law, all these different factors that will allow a judge to give a sentence below the sentencing guideline range. You have to know them, though. You have to actually read the case decisions when they come out at the time. If you don't, you're a putz, you're lazy, and you're a fool. So there was law, as I said, and the law was that if the defendant getting jail time, getting uh, put in jail, would result in the loss of jobs for innocent people, a judge can lower the sentence or even give a non-custodial sentence. And I felt that we had that in place with this case with the older brother. And as I said, combined with the fact that they were victimized themselves to some degree by the older criminal, they asked me my prediction, and I uh, said that I thought that the older brother would get no more than a year in prison, but probably some jail time, and that the younger brother would get no prison. Now, this was a wildly optimistic prediction, but, you know, I want to be positive I can at the beginning. I don't want to lie, but I want to give them some hope. 
but I don't want to also over-promise and under-deliver. It's a, it's a delicate balance. Again, this was in February of 2020. It was a very early prediction, but they asked. We ended up immediately pleading guilty and just to get the benefit of the major acceptance of responsibility by pleading so early. You know, look, we had no choice. I wanted to get all my bang for the buck that I could. And then the pandemic hit and all the cases just stalled. Nothing was going on for a long time. And at this point, as a defense lawyer, and really in any profession which requires you to have a battle, to have a fight, as I said earlier, you need to prepare the battlefield as early as possible. From day one, as I said, you need to be thinking about the last day of the case. And I felt in this case that the more time that passed, the more likely it would be that the judge would be less inclined to put either of the brothers in prison because more time would have passed from the time of the criminal activity and the judge could see that these were two young men who had made a mistake but were now living law-abiding lives for years, had gotten sort of safely into a new career, and that by pulling them out of it and putting them in jail for something that had occurred so many years earlier, it would sort of be somewhat of a travesty. You know, that's a defense lawyer speaking. Um, but I felt that it was important for the judge to feel that because these two boys had done well in the years that had uh, occurred since the criminal activity, he would feel comfortable in knowing that they would not reoffend. Now, again, remember that their criminal conduct ended in about 2017. So time was our friend. And the boys kept working hard, doing well, keeping their restaurant afloat. And the more they worked honest jobs, the better they'd look when they finally got sentenced and time just passed. And it passed because of the pandemic. Then the courts finally started gearing up again federally, but they had to deal with a lot of backed up trials first. People are in jail because of the pandemic. They weren't allowed to have their trials. So it was important that the courts deal with those cases first. Obviously, sentencings for defendants who were not in prison, like my two brothers were, uh, that was the last priority. Now, while the legal issues weren't complicated in this case, in my mind, the psychology behind the sentencing was everything is about manipulation and law. I needed more time to pass, more time for the boys to show they deserved a, a break from the judge. We had every legitimate excuse to delay things, and I did. And then about a year ago, we're over two years into this case, the older brother tells me, it really kind of shocked me, that he wanted to open up a second restaurant. We had the sentencing at that point, it had been adjourned to about two months from this period. And I thought this was a mistake because how presumptuous would it look for the brothers to open up a second restaurant, put all these people in uh, new jobs, knowing that they were facing many years in prison? How would it look if we had a sentencing just a couple of months later and we're going to claim to the judge that he needs to keep the two brothers out of prison because of all the jobs that were going to be lost and we're the ones opening up another restaurant just before and putting more people at risk? It would look horrible. And it would put the judge in a bad situation. He'd get pissed. Why should he have to be the one to save them? They didn't have to open the second restaurant. Were they so presumptuous to assume they weren't getting jail? No question in my mind the judge would be putting them uh, both in jail if that's what they decided to do. The only way this made sense would be if I could postpone the sentence even more. We had to because we had to put more time in between the second restaurant opening and the eventual sentencing. So we needed to delay things, and we did. We had a number of legitimate reasons. Some of them weren't even my fault. The prosecutor changed twice in the case. Uh, the first two left to go into private practice. We needed more time to get better character letters for the sentencing from family and friends. And I needed the letters to be fantastic. They couldn't be half-assed. We needed the, the brothers to look like saints because we needed every possible last bit of a break we could get. And in fact, the truth were, was they were two great guys and the letters we ultimately received were fantastic. And that's important too. Every detail needs to be prepared and controlled and done the best possible way. You cannot half-ass this type of thing because you will pay in the end. It all comes out in the wash. So we delayed and delayed, and sometimes the judge asked to delay the sentencing because he had a commitment. Finally, it was scheduled for last Friday. 
about a year after the sentencing was originally supposed to occur, right when the brothers had just opened up a second restaurant. I felt enough time had passed. The second restaurant was opened and it was a hit, but the margins were still very small. One misstep, and this could all be proven to the judge, one misstep and both restaurants could be bankrupt and you'd have approximately 70 people, 75, that would have lost their jobs in two restaurants. I needed to keep the two boys out of prison, and I felt that uh, with the more than six years that had passed since the criminal activity that had ended, 75 people potentially losing their jobs if the older brother went to jail, they had done so many good deeds, they were abused by the older criminal with terror ties, so I felt we had a shot. I thought we had a chance to keep them both out of jail. Now, I must give you one caveat. Naturally, I am delusional. All really good defense lawyers are. I just feel that I can accomplish anything inside a courtroom. I, I, I just do. I mean, this is what it is. If you go in there thinking that you're not going to win, you're not going to win. I also have a very good feel for what judges want to hear. I know which points to hit and which ones to avoid. If you say the wrong thing in court to a judge at sentencing, sometimes they get really pissed. And he's going to take it out on your client because he can't take it out on you. You're the lawyer. What's he going to do to you? Yell at you? Nobody cares. But he can take it out on the client if he gets pissed at the lawyer. Judges are human. So you need to be careful with your words and not piss them off. Unless you absolutely have to piss them off. And sometimes you do. Now, this past Friday, the first sentencing was set for 11 a.m., the second at 2.30, and I felt pretty stressed that morning. I'm not going to lie. I, I did. I've done this well over 100 times on huge cases with you know huge things at stake. I represented, if you recall, El Chapo's wife in a case in which she was initially facing the rest of her life in prison. And I got her an insanely great result just a couple of years back in D.C., of all places, not even in my, my home court. She spent just 24 months in prison, despite, as I said, facing decades. But I was anxious for these two sentencings because I really wanted to keep these brothers out of jail. Even a year in prison would be a disaster to me, but it would be a great result if you look at it objectively because the older brother was facing like 12 years worth of sentencing guidelines. I didn't want to let him down, and I really liked them a lot, and they looked up to me. I just, you know, this is a heartbreaking profession. I didn't want to let them down. I felt that um, they were trusting me. Their families were trusting me. I felt a lot of pressure to get this result that I wanted. When you like a client, it makes it tougher. It puts more pressure on you. And I did that morning as I was getting dressed, I did what I very rarely do for a court day. Now, listen, this is the truth. This actually happened. I brought two hankies that day. Two hankies, not one, not the usual one. When I cross-examine sometimes all day in a federal court case, you know, I get really whipped into a lather not going to lie. I'm laughing, I'm crying, I'm screaming. It's like I've run 20 miles and I need to wipe down on occasion. But rarely do I take two hankies to court. One is enough. But for this on Friday, I felt I needed two. It was a two hanky day. It was also like 90 degrees out. So it was a two hanky day. I get to the subway to go to court in Brooklyn because the traffic is so unpredictable in New York City, and I just can't be late. You can't be late for court. And sometimes you get in traffic, and you're screwed, and you feel like you're going to have a stroke in the car. But no matter how, no matter who you are in New York, sometimes you need to take a subway. If you absolutely positively have to be at some place at some time. I'm feeling a good amount of pressure as I have the lives of not just these two boys, but their families, their employees in my hands. And I'm sitting on a subway and some dude walks in, some homeless guy, and he's got these two gigantic plastic bags filled with empty cans, like a thousand of them, the biggest bags you've ever seen. And, and he's dragging them onto the subway floor. So naturally, a hole uh, opens up in one of them and the, the cans are, are tumbling out. As the train is lurching, uh, I'm watching as the cans are coming towards me. I'm dodging them with my feet, and I'm in a $3,000 suit, and all I can think of is like, this is my life. But it did take some of my attention off of the stress of the day. 
I finally get to court and the older brother was scheduled first. I felt that, well, if we did well with him, obviously the younger brother, who wasn't nearly as culpable, uh, we would obviously get no jail for the, the younger brother as long as I did well for the first one. Now, when I finally got the chance to speak, because there's a lot of formalities first uh, from the judge, I was very emotional. And it was it's very easy for me to get emotional on cue because I can draw uh, some things in my head out and I can, I can turn it on, really, the, the flip of a switch. The brothers had done so many good things, and I mentioned that the conduct was aberrational, but I had to be careful not to suggest that they were making excuses, and I had the older brother very well prepared for his statement, and I was very prepared with the law and the facts, and it's important to be very well prepared in front of a judge, even if you have great facts for sentencing. If you look sloppy, if you don't know the law, the judge is going to take it out on you. Again, he's human. And the judge and I have have often uh, had these appearances. We get along well. And he was very complimentary to me of my presentation, which was nice. And I nearly cried at the end. And I told the judge, I didn't want to stop speaking. I apologized and said, I don't want to stop speaking because I want to protect the client as much as I did. And once I stopped talking, there would be nobody left to protect him. And you sort of need to play to your audience and be liked by the judge. And it was a dramatic moment. But sometimes in order to make big points, you need to be dramatic. You need to get it across. And as I said to the judge, I'm finishing up now. This is the big finish. And he laughed. You know, it's important to make them laugh too. I hit all the important points over and over. And again, I was very careful not to give the judge the opportunity to hammer my client because of my mistake. The judge even noted in his statement after, in his sentencing explanation, that I, quote, studiously stayed away, those were his words, not mine, from suggesting that the client was under duress from the older criminal who had pressured him. Duress is actually a legal defense. And in my mind, although the defendant, the older brother, was under some pressure, he certainly was not under legal duress. And to even suggest as much would have been an abject disaster. So I was very careful to suggest pressure, That was put on him and lots of it, but I always followed up with, but the boys knew what they were doing. They knew that it was criminal and they could have stopped at any time. That was smart. Finally, the judge spent about 10 minutes explaining his position and it was excruciating because all I want is the number. He was hard on my client and he should have been noting that he had abused his position in the bank and stolen from account holders. The judge also noted that my client had done so many good things. And then he addressed the restaurant's point about the innocent employees losing work. And he noted that many innocent people could lose their jobs. And I thought I had the win right there because he was clearly impressed with that point. And I have a great ability to guess the sentence in a case before the sentencing starts. I'm actually usually right to the month, like 90 to 95% of the time. I just can tell. It's like an inner, an inner feeling. I just can, I have a good feel. And I actually believed when the sentencing had started that my client was getting no jail time. And as the judge started finishing talking about how innocent people could lose their jobs if my client was sent to jail, as I said, I thought we were getting no jail. But then he said, and I was, I was blown away, but I have to give a custodial sentence. The conduct here, he said, was bad enough that there needs to be a message sent to the public, a message of general deterrence that this sort of crime will not be tolerated. And, and I, I, again, I was stunned. I, I suppose the other side of delusion as a defense lawyer is massive self-blame. I'm thinking, what did I do? I could have done better. What did I do wrong? I, how did I screw this up? Now I got to look at this family and knowing that he's going to go to jail. He's got young kids at home. They don't even know that he's up in New York for court, let alone that he could be facing many years in jail. And I had years to prepare for this sentencing, and I just couldn't believe, look, I'm going to be honest, this is my podcast, so I'm going to be honest. I was frankly amazed that my charm and my brains had failed me. How how arrogant does that sound now coming out of my mouth? sounds pretty fucking arrogant. But I really had prepared the battlefield perfectly. 
And now my best wasn't going to be enough. And that really disappointed me. I, 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 was, I was upset. And then the judge, after saying that he was giving my client jail time, stated the following, and I'm going to quote, I hereby sentence the defendant to one week in prison. I thought I frankly heard it wrong. I thought he said one year. In 33 years of practice, I had never gotten a jail sentence in a federal case as low as one week. I had gotten three months a few times, including for Fat Joe, the the uh, rapper, and I had gotten many no jail sentences, but I had never gotten a prison sentence of one week. And after he finished all of his remarks, I asked him, Your Honor, did you say one week? And he looked at me with the tiniest of smiles and said, yes, one week. I was obviously ecstatic, as was the client and his family. He'll spend a few days in prison. It's not even going to be a week um, sometime in November and be done with this forever. It was really an amazing result. And I felt the axiom again was proven true. If you work hard, good things follow. If you cut corners and half-ass it, prepare for punishment. You just have to be willing to work hard, be attentive to every detail of your work. If it's making shoes, if it's picking up garbage, if it's being a trial lawyer, you need to control it all, no matter how small the detail is. The sentencing took over 90 minutes and I was completely drained by the end of it, but I had one more in an hour. And I knew that the younger brother obviously wasn't going to get any jail time if the older brother had only gotten one week. The judge asked me if I needed more time for lunch because it was so late already. And I said, no, I'll be back in an hour. I mean, I just wanted to get it over with. I went to the courthouse cafe to get lunch. And naturally, my associate and the clients and their families, they went out of the courthouse for some food. But I just wanted to get a quick sandwich because I still had work to do. I'm, I'm working here. Everybody else is watching. Everybody else in the courtroom that day is watching one man beg for his life, so to speak. You know, this is how it is when you're the defense lawyer. It's isolating. You're alone. It's just me. So I went to the courthouse cafe, and of course, it was closed. There was a sign on the wall that it was closed until October 23rd. So I had to go to like the, you know, the candy shop downstairs, and I got two blueberry fig bars and a bag of nuts and raisins. That's what I had for my fucking lunch after that great result, the real breakfast of champions. An hour later, the younger brother received no prison time and a much shorter sentencing proceeding. Three sentencings, eight days, $11 million in fraud, all added up to seven days maximum in prison. Here's the moral to the story. Who you choose as your criminal lawyer is the most important choice you'll ever make in your life. It's more important than who you choose as your spouse. No kidding. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'll be back in a second. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. We're going to do some quick hits on things in the news. Mayor in the club, Eric Adams, to his credit, has finally stopped being a complete lackey for his liberal masters and is actually attempting to stand up for New York City and not just in the club. Of course, it's too late. And of course, he's done nothing but flap his gums. But this is what he said last week. I want you to listen to this. Mr. Producer, roll the tape. And let me tell you something, New Yorkers. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. One time we were just getting Venezuela. Now we're getting Ecuador. Now we're getting Russian speaking coming through Mexico. Now we're getting uh, Western Africa. Now we're getting people from all over the globe have made their minds up that they're going to come through the southern part of the border and come into New York City. And everyone is saying it's New York City's problem. Every community in this city is going to be impacted. And sure enough, a few days later, he announced that because of the $12 billion 
budget deficit caused by 10,000 migrants being sent to New York City each month, over 110,000 since last year, that there would be cuts from 5 to 15% to every city agency in New York, including the New York Police Department and the Health Department. And that's all in response to the migrant crisis that was created solely by Joe Biden and his leftist political party. Naturally, though, because Mayor in the club is a coward, he didn't call out Joe Biden in his remarks or his political masters. He had the balls to blame the governor of Texas, who simply sent 13,000 of the 110,000 migrants to New York City. And this is after uh, Mayor in the club bragged about New York City being a sanctuary city for this slop coming over uh, the border. The migrants are being kept in our hotels in New York City, in schools, on the street. And there's no end in sight because Joe Biden wants more Democrat voters. He doesn't give a single shit that New York City is finished. And it's finished according to a liberal New York City mayor. 21,000 migrant students were added to the public schools in New York City this past week. Many don't speak English. But they get our free education, free lunch, free everything, assuming they actually show up to school because in New York City, listen to this, public school attendance is only at 64%. Think about how nutty that is. Every class, only 64% of the kids show up to the public schools. Nice school system, New York. Nice education you're getting, New Yorkers. One uh, migrant mother from Venezuela proudly said, and I'll quote her, my son doesn't speak English, but I'm not worried about it. They will give him English lessons at school. Of course they will, lady. Take our money, take our lives, take everything we got. There were lines to get into the schools in the morning uh, when classes started. There are just too many kids. There wasn't enough rooms in the, in the buildings. And, oh, and by the way, the school budget is about to be cut. Nevertheless, the leftist chancellor of the New York City school system happily and cheerily said, quote, we are welcoming all these migrant students into our schools with open arms. We know it's a larger political issue and that the mayor and others will have to deal with it. But when they show up in our schools, they'll get the best we have. The only problem is that the best that you have, it sucks. It's garbage. That's the best you have. It's inferior and actual legal New York City residents are suffering because they're being robbed by you and by Joe Biden. This is only a political issue because Democrats want to steal from their voters to make more voters, to get more of them in. New York City is being destroyed, and there is nothing that can come back from it. There's no way to get back from it, according to a liberal mayor of New York City. What a screw job New Yorkers are getting from Joe Biden. And they're, 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 you know, a lot of these kids aren't even going to the schools. They have to go to other buildings because there's no room in there. But their parents, their sheep, they're going to continue voting for their demise, their demise, the Democrats, because they are idiotic sheep and nothing else. They are literally voting for their own demise. I'm going to repeat that. Listen to these numbers. This past June in America... 99,539 illegals came through just this past June. In July, over 132,000. In August, 177,000. They keep going up. In Tucson, Arizona, 12,000 illegals ended up just the last seven days. Just one city, Tucson. What did they find from those uh, wonderful best of Mexico or whatever the hell they're coming from? Central America, South America. Iraq, Pakistan, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, 11 pounds of fentanyl, 9 pounds of cocaine were found on illegals in one week. 24 human sex trafficking arrests in one week in Tucson. You think our country's coming back from this? This is three years straight of criminals pouring into America. Now listen, some of them are real, they're not criminals, but a good many of them are. When the Democrats win the White House next year because of that moron Trump insisting upon running, we'll get another four years of millions of illegals flooding in, many of them unaccounted for. In Chicago, O'Hare Airport is housing illegals in the airport. Why not? 
In Massachusetts, the governor is activating the National Guard to deal with the illegals. Again, we're only three years into this. you got five more left. In L.A., they're threatening to sue the Texas governor for sending migrants there to L.A. Why, why should Texas, their border towns, just deal with this issue? Don't liberals love this slop that's pouring in? We're giving our country away. Does anybody fucking care? So far this year, 143 non-U.S. citizens on the FBI's terror watch list have been encountered at the northern and southern borders. 143. That's up from 98 last year and only 16 in 2021. The terrorists are sending more because they know that the liberals will continue to let them in. We are letting terrorists into this country. They are destroying us from within. And the liberals, the Democrats, are opening the door. Think how insane this is. Today is 22 years since Muslim terrorists killed 3,000 Americans, knocked down the World Trade Center, and nearly flew a plane into the White House. America has capitulated to the point that just 12 days ago, it was announced that the FBI is, is investigating more than a dozen migrants from uh, Uzbekistan and other countries that were allowed into the U.S. after they sought asylum at our southern border with Mexico. And they were led into the country, and of course, they were promptly lost. We don't know where they are. U.S. intelligence officers found out that the migrants traveled with the help of a smuggler with ties to ISIS, a terrorist. These migrants, let's call them what they really are, are people with terror ties. They are lost in the U.S., and they are up to no good. How fucking sloppy are we? How soft are we? We elected a man who left, let millions of unchecked illegals into our country in three years, hundreds and hundreds of terrorists. If you think we are not getting another major terror attack here, you are insane. Because it's happening. It's not a maybe, it's a when. Guess what? The only one who can deal with this is a guy who doesn't care what anyone thinks of him, which is Ron DeSantis. When Trump loses... Next year, which he will, all of you idiots who supported him are to blame, not just the criminal Trump. We expect this from him, but from Americans who should know better? We had a perfectly good candidate who can actually think and speak English, and we let the MAGA morons destroy him, which is ironic because Trump has, has never said he'd pardon any of these MAGA, these proud boys, these racist idiots who got massive sentences for their January 6th crimes. Only DeSantis has said he'd pardon them. And yet the Proud Boys are all looking to Trump to pardon them. Trump isn't going to, to, to pardon you. The Proud Boys leaders got decades in prison last week. They were begging and crying like bitches in front of the judge. And as soon as they got hammered, by the way, they got hammered by a Trump-appointed judge in D.C. A Trump-appointed judge in D.C. After one of them cried and begged for some mercy... He screamed Trump won as he was being let out of court because he was begging and crying and, and you know all that because he was hoping the judge would give him a lower sentence. He didn't really want uh, the, he didn't really feel any kind of remorse for what he did. He was just play acting. The Trump judge knew better and hammered the shit out of him. Another one of the Proud Boy leaders called Alex Jones from prison and said Trump would pardon him. Spoiler alert, he's not. Trump was. Uh, uh, was pardoning Lil Wayne or Lil, whatever the fuck his name is, getting paid Trump God knows how many millions. What does Trump know? Why is he pardoning a, a rapper? Why is he pardoning a, a very wealthy Democratic fundraiser? Why didn't he pardon any of the January 6th defendants who got arrested before he was out of office? Because he doesn't care. He never even talks about them. Have you noticed that? Trump isn't pardoning them. He didn't pay any money out of his pocket for their defense lawyers. Anyway, one of the leaders called Alex Jones, and Alex Jones is a uh, hero to the MAGA movement as well. He's the wonderful online media lunatic who was successfully sued for a billion dollars for saying that the Sandy Hook school massacre, which claimed the lives of 20 little boys and girls and six adults, he said it was fake. This is a, a MAGA hero. Over and over he said it. This is just when you think like that MAGA can't get any lower, you know, this is what they are. 
And by the way, the MAGA movement, they hate Jews as well, of course. They don't just hate illegals, they hate Jews. They are, MAGA, the most hated political group in the history of America for good reason and why Trump will get steamrolled next year in a year at the general election because only MAGA is voting for Trump next November. I sure as shit am not voting for Trump. Anyone who, uh, who does vote for Trump deserves President Kamala Harris, who will soon be our president after Biden either drops dead or drops out. We're going to have that cackling uh, racist imbecile all because of Trump. And by the way, I recently was quoted in the paper. I had the gall uh, to be quoted about Rudy Giuliani's Georgia indictment. I was asked about how my mafia clients had felt with Rudy, who had prosecuted many of them when he was the U.S. attorney in Manhattan. How did they feel about the indictment of Rudy? And I stated the following, quote, all of my clients who had the misfortune of being prosecuted by him are laughing now. Jeffrey Lichtman, who successfully handled the defense of Junior Gotti, stated, I'm thrilled that Rudy will now experience what it feels like to be on the wrong end of a RICO prosecution, Lichtman said. I mean, let's be honest. It's funny to see Rudy in a mugshot looking like death warmed over with no money, begging Trump uh, for money for lawyers. But MAGA was not happy with my comments. Here's one voice message I received. You got to listen to this. This is typical of what I receive. And I'm just minding my own business. A voicemail comes in on my phone. I check it. Listen to this. Start this, Mr. Producer. Hello, I'm Steve Horner, and I'm trying to uh, contact, and I think probably I already have, and I'll leave my uh, heartfelt uh, message here with you. But uh, if this is not the Jeffrey Lickman, who uh, was quoted in the newspaper, uh, dirtbag uh, thug motherfuckers, uh, then, you know, excuse my call. But if it is this uh, Jew motherfucker who is uh, floating over the idea that uh, the most honorable hard-working, trusted man of uh, the best president in the United States, Donald Trump, uh, notably Ju Rudy Giuliani, is uh, being uh, screwed over by the, uh, by the um, oh, I would say the liberal cunt nigger motherfuckers, the revengeful reparation-seeking uh, uh, assholes who uh, can't stand uh, the thought of Trump coming into business because then they have their uh, fucking uh, welfare and uh, their uh, their uh, gravy train life, uh, liberal life uh, swept away from them and are forced to be uh, more uh, responsible in life. And they just can't face that pain. And then we have the Jew fuck uh, Lickman, who is, uh, you know, castigating uh, Rudy and making gloating because he's being uh, nailed to the cross. And uh, meanwhile, Lickman, the Jew fuck, is... Uh, you know, supporting the uh, dishonesty, the immorality, the sleazebag, scumbag, intimidating, uh, threatening uh, lifestyle of the uh, of the thug fucks. That's some shit, huh? Listen, if you think this guy is not typical of what MAGA is, of what they think of Jews and blacks, you're nuts. MAGA online pundits hate Israel because they can't say that they hate Jews, so they have to say they hate Israel. They don't utter a peep about Muslim terrorists who kill Americans and who are trying to destroy Israel. They all seem to be very loud, though, about hating Israel. And their politics on Israel is exactly the same as Iran's. That's good. Exactly the same as Al-Qaeda, as the Taliban, as Hezbollah, as Hamas, as ISIS, and MAGA. Same. That's the one thing they can all agree upon. And as I said, it's just about Jews. It's not about Israel, as we learned from that crazy caller to my office. His name was Steve Horner. He's some kind of white supremacist incel who is best known. This is the, the work of his life, is trying for decades to get bars to ban ladies' nights because Steve Horner thinks it's unfair to men. Naturally, as you can surmise, uh, Steve Horner hates women and has not seen a vagina since he crawled out of his mother's 70 years ago. This is MAGA. Don't kid yourselves otherwise. As for Rudy, I don't think the Georgia case will end in a conviction for him or Trump. Well, they're going to be they're going to be on trial for a year, probably. The grand jury report was released, and there was one grand juror who voted not to indict Trump. It doesn't have to be unanimous in a grand jury to indict, but it does have to be unanimous to convict at trial. There were some split votes on many of the other targets. 
by the time the final the trial finally gets going, and if Trump somehow wins the election, but he will not, he'll be on trial in Georgia for a year or so in his term. That's what's going to happen if Trump wins, but he won't. But that's normal. You can thank Trump for that. He cares so much about America that he knows that if he wins, he's going to be on trial for a year in Georgia. He can't dismiss that case. And I do believe that the uh, jury, however, will contain at least one uh, Trump supporter in Georgia, and I think they'll vote not to convict. It'll be hung. Not that it makes any difference as we're going to have an empty suit in the White House with Trump, uh, as we have with Biden. And the Chinese will continue to send their spies into America, to our colleges and universities. They'll be sending them to our military sites, as we learned last week, and they'll continue to send their spy balloons over our country. We won't do a damn thing about it, of course, because our president and his main opposition are two old and competent criminals in Biden and Trump. But have no fear again, Trump is not winning next November. And by the way, Trump says he loves China. They only killed a million Americans with the virus. Uh, They've only been spying on us nonstop, stealing our technology. But Trump loves them just like he loves uh, the killer who runs North Korea. Another, I mean, this is how dumb Trump is. He said he told them that he should open up condos on his shoreline. This is a guy who's starving his own people. They're eating grass and their own dogs. And Trump is telling the world how much he loves them. But I do believe Trump will be convicted in D.C. as it's a liberal shithole, and I think he'll get jail time that judge is not playing. But I have to say, I I sometimes wonder, what do young people who will be voting for the first time, what they must think of our system right now? I mean, conservative students, I'm not talking about leftist, woke, imbecile students. Trump is disgusting. Obviously, they have the brains. They know not to vote for him. And DeSantis is just not inspiring any excitement. So what do you do? Many times you just have to hold your nose and vote for a candidate. But you really don't have to hold your nose with DeSantis, even though he's against abortion. I mean, like any kind of abortion for any set of circumstances. And to me, that's really a dumb choice that he made. He's not an attractive candidate, even if, if you look at him objectively, he's a fantastic a candidate will be a good president because he's very tough. And look what he did for Florida. He cleaned it up so much that everybody moved down there in the pandemic when Trump shut the country down. Even Trump moved there. But the alternative is Trump, who obviously can't win, or Kamala Harris or Biden. What I would say to young people is do what you have to do and just vote the Santist. Just trust me on this. We're not getting a better candidate anytime soon. He's the one who can beat Biden. He's a real leader. He's shown it in Florida. This Vivek, he's a fucking clown. No chance he'll get three votes. It's got to be DeSantis. And lastly, I have one more last topic. I think I want to do a weekly segment on Alina Habubi. She's Trump's lawyer slash mouthpiece who was so dumb, even Trump had to remove her from cases. So naturally, he put her into a position where she can do more harm as his spokesperson. Remember that Trump lawyers are claiming that they need years to prepare for the D.C. case, the January 6th case. Millions and millions of documents were provided in discovery, I think like 11 million. Well, Trump claims through his genius spokesperson that he doesn't need three years. He doesn't even need three weeks to prepare for trial. Here's an interview of Helena Habubi, Helena Yabadabadubi, claiming that Trump doesn't need to prepare which is completely counter to his lawyers asking for a trial in 2026 because they need time to prepare. Here she is speaking with utter idiocy. Listen to this. You This, the logistics, you saw the timeline there. Uh, that's in the middle of running for president, caucuses, primaries. How do you logistically handle, you know, prepping a client for all of those different trials and running for president of the United States? Yeah, if it was a normal person, honestly, Shannon, I could understand the concern. President Trump is not your average person. He's incredibly intelligent and he knows the ropes. He also knows the facts because he lived them. These are these are not complicated facts. Look at Fannie. It was a phone call, a phone call that's been around forever that he refers to as the perfect phone call. What is he going to have to be prepped for? The truth? You don't have to prep much when you've done nothing wrong. So that I'm not concerned with. 
Keep in mind that she's never tried a criminal case in her life. She's never prepped a client to testify in a criminal case. She's never appeared in court for a criminal case in her life. And she's telling the world that you don't need to prepare a client when he's telling the truth. Well, guess what? All clients think that they're telling the truth. How the fuck does she know what he's telling if it's the truth? This is such moronic advice that it's almost impossible to believe that a president of the United States could have someone this dumb speak for him. Of course you need to prepare your client. You need to go over the direct examination numerous times. You need to pound him in preparation for cross-examination. That's what you do. You prep him for hours and hours. Do you know how many times I've made witnesses who were speaking God's truth on the stand look like lying idiots when they testify? Many. That's the answer. But Alina Habubi-Dubi, she knows better based on her zero experience as a criminal lawyer. I'll say it again. Intelligence is not directly related to how much silicone you have pumped into your breasts. Intelligence is not directly related to a degree from spread your legs widener law school. It's apparently not worth that diploma is not worth the paper it's written on. Ugh. I went on too long uh, for this podcast and there was some stuff I wanted to get into, but I didn't some other topics and I have to do this. I have to do this topic. You're going to hear this first next week. I promise my former love for Subway sandwiches and why I'm a germaphobe. I am a germaphobe. You're going to hear about why it's a compelling story. It involves NBA great Moses Malone and a tub of tuna fish. Don't miss next week's podcast of Beyond the Legal Limit, where you can find uh, me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts can be found. See you next week.